Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we watched The Lady Eve, a 1941 screwball romantic comedy starring Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda, written and directed by the prolific filmmaker Preston Sturgis. It's about a con artist who seduces and accidentally falls in love with a wealthy but naive man on a cruise ship. So this was a request from Courtney. I want to thank Courtney so much for requesting this film because I love this movie. One of my very favorites. Uh, we also want to congratulate Courtney for being offered a tenure track position. So this is a little bit of a celebratory episode. And Congrats. Uh, yes, this will be very fun, hopefully for everybody, because uh, this is just such a fun movie to talk about. Just a ridiculous, absurd 1940s comedy about a woman aggressively nagging a man for an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I first saw this movie a few years ago when I really got into this genre of film and it's one of it's considered one of like the great screwball rom-coms of this period but i think it's slightly less well known amongst like the lay public than something like bringing up baby or his girl friday like if you know anything about these movies but aren't you know, like an expert you might have heard of those but maybe not the lady eve but um i mean the characters in this behave slightly less like normal human beings than the ones in those movies which is probably part of the reason why <laughs> i would not describe the characters in bringing up baby as describing no, like normal human beings no, in not any at all. way <laughs> <laughs> but i think the difference is that preston sturgis who we will be discussing obviously has a sort of cynical perspective on human beings that is very, very dark. I think of this movie as one of the darkest of this genre of film from this period, if not the darkest. The book I've mentioned, Pursuits of Happiness by Stanley Cavill, which is like the sort of landmark academic text that introduced the concept of the comedy of remarriage. He talks about His Girl Friday as being like the sort of the dark movie of this group of films because it's revolves around like a murder and, you know, some guy being in prison, which I totally understand. But to me, this movie is really the dark one because its perspective on human relationships is really, really bleak. And the other Preston Sturgis movies also have that element. Like there's always kind of a twist at the end of his movies that is really dark in a funny way, but you're left thinking like, hmm, I don't know what I think about what you're saying. And this one in particular is just like, it doesn't leave you feeling like, hopeful about romance, I would say, which is part of what makes it so interesting. And he's unusual for the people who made these movies at this time, in that he wrote and directed all of the sort of great films that he's known for. Someone like George Cukor or Howard Hawks generally worked with other screenwriters. I'm not sure about Hawks for all of his movies. I think he probably had some screenwriting credits. I can't remember off the top of my head. But Sturgis is definitely different in that like he is a sort of auteur in the way that we think of that term now like he was really creating these out of like a specific vision that he had and he is known specifically as a screenwriter he started off that way and I think he's basically like the best screenwriter in American cinema <laughs> like period I I don't know that I would put anyone above him 
I mean, it's wild to read about just how many scripts he was churning out at such incredible high quality at this point, because obviously this was a period when films were made faster and there was this massive glut of playwrights who were being recruited kind of in the 1930s and 40s and shipped over to Hollywood to just, you know, rewrite 20 scripts a year. But like the fact that he was turning out these incredibly high quality movies and doing multiples per year and all these like scripts that were never filmed is wild, considering how slow things are today. Yeah, well, the sort of incredible thing about him is that obviously the other filmmakers I've mentioned, you know, Kukor and Hawks and other like great auteurs of this period, we generally remember them most for the films they made in the 30s and 40s. But someone like George Kukor was still making movies basically up to his death. And he also directed My Fair Lady and the version of A Star is Born with Judy Garland in the 50s, like he continued to work even if his movies that he made later aren't the most famous ones necessarily. Um, I think the last movie he made was in like the early 80s or something, maybe the late 70s, like he just worked forever. And Sturgis's last movie, I think was 1955. But basically, his period of output was the 1940s as a director anyway. He was also working as a screenwriter in the 1930s. And the four movies that are like his stone cold masterpieces, which are this one, The Lady Eve, and then also Sullivan's Travels, which is a satire about Hollywood, and The Palm Beach Story and The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, which are also romantic comedies, were all filmed in 1941 and 1942. (laughs) Like, no filmmaker now could possibly achieve that and it's not a reasonable expectation right like that's i'm not criticizing anyone but it is ludicrous to think it's also very illustrative of like why this was the golden age of hollywood because if there are this many really great films coming out and there is effectively no television then of course everyone is going to be completely obsessed with movie stars and this particular film starred two colossal movie stars uh, Barbara Stanwyck was bigger at this point, but like Henry Fonda had just starred in The Grapes of Wrath, which was a huge, very serious movie. So like, they were both A-list. Very impressive cast. Yeah, I mean, I knew that The Grapes of Wrath had come out in 1940 and that this had come out in 41. But after rewatching this the other day, I really was thinking about that. And I just thought like, that is crazy. <laughs> and like, no one today could pull that off. The Grapes of Wrath is an incredible movie and Fonda in that film is like one of the best screen performances that I've ever seen, basically. He has a monologue at the end of that movie that is just like indescribably good. And he was mainly known for more serious stuff before this, although he had done some comedies. He'd done one other comedy with Stanwyck called The Mad Miss Manton, which is just like a lunatic, lunatic movie. It is so weird. But the fact that he'd gone from The Grapes of Wrath to this in one year and was like known for being very serious about politics. I'm not sure how much that was in his public persona at this point, but he definitely like at the height of his career was known for being like a really serious advocate for like left-wing causes. And then he's like making this movie where he plays a complete idiot, like just a dummy. It's just really funny to me. Stanwyck, was, as you said, a bit more established at this point, although they were both very, very famous. She had started out in the silent era, though she wasn't particularly famous at that point, and really broke out, um, I think, in 1931 with a Frank Capra movie, Ladies of Leisure. He basically discovered her. 
Um, and they made several movies together sort of in the pre-code era. I've seen Ladies of Leisure and she is unbelievable in it. Like she just has this luminous face where you could just put the camera on her and like the movie is fine. It's not great, but like she just, you can tell she's a movie star just from watching her face. Yeah. I mean, she was absolutely iconic, massively well paid at this point. She was like, I think there was a period when she was like the richest woman in America or something, <laughs> but it was kind of a interesting situation because like she had come literally from nothing. Like she was an orphan. She she like got her first kind of theater work as a showgirl when she was in her mid teens. And then she just like worked for her entire life and was a notorious workaholic. And she was also a full on Republican who loved Ayn Rand because she was very much like, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, which is slightly dispiriting to know, but you can kind of understand where that came from if she was literally like, you know, I was an orphan who grew up in a tenement and started working at 14 and now I'm the richest person in the world. <laughs> yes. I mean, obviously I always am encouraged when you read about someone like Fonda who was or like Myrna Loy was very involved in democratic politics at this period but the democrat republican thing was slightly different in the 30s and 40s than it is now and Stanwick as you say like it's so psychologically understandable why she had that view because I think she was in like multiple foster homes and I mean it was it was pretty bad but I was thinking watching this again this time that I mean, she's obviously a totally beloved actress by people who love movies from this period. I'm not saying she's, like, underappreciated. You know, she's very famous. But I feel like she, there is kind of a lack of credit in some way to just how wide her range was. Again, I think the sort of very mainstream discussion of actors from this period, you get a lot of talk about, like, Betty Davis and Katherine Hepburn and whatnot, um, both of whom I love. But... Stanwyck was totally a master of like most genres that were being made at this time, except musicals, which obviously were, you know, it's a different skill set, which I think speaks to the fact that she worked so fucking much, right? Like she just was doing everything. But she did a bunch of screwball comedies, which she's obviously great in, and we'll get into the details of that in a minute. But she also did noir films. She was the you know, main female character in Double Indemnity, which a lot of people consider to be the greatest noir movie. I don't personally agree, but it's a great film. And then she did a lot of just kind of like straight sort of women's picture melodrama type movies as well. Um, she's amazing in Stella Dallas, which I watched recently. She plays like a kind of young mother who's having problems with like her teenage daughter. And it's a very kind of naturalistic performance and really, really moving. And that was from the late 30s. And she just could do everything. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I, I just am really in awe of her. And I think she is extraordinary in this movie. So good. Because she has to be really, really funny. But also you have to buy that she's genuinely emotionally wrapped up in what's going on. Which is a hard sell because it's one of those stories where they have to fall in love basically after two days. <laughs> I mean, most screwball comedies of this period involve something like that. You know, and bringing yet, up this baby is the Catherine. One, this is the one where I was thinking about it while I was watching, I have to say. Because like the characters are... I mean, obviously the characters in these movies were so ridiculous. Like the characters in Bringing Up Baby are just completely absurd. But I was watching this and I was just like, he's so stupid. <laughs> I mean, yes, he is very dumb. Basically, the setup is that, like, 
you know, we mentioned this up top, but she's on this cruise ship with her father and like another associate of theirs. And this, they're this kind of like group of card sharps and they go around on cruise ships and, you know, con rich people out of their money. And uh, Henry Fonda has just come out of this like year long research trip on the Amazon researching snakes because that's his passion. He's, I don't remember the technical term for a researcher of snakes, but they mentioned it a couple of times in the movie. Yeah. They use a word that's not herpetologist. Cause they're like, they're like, we're specifically talking about snakes. <laughs> yes, exactly. And he's also the heir to not a beer empire, but an ale empire. They make a big fuss out of this. It's like the ale that won for Yale or something. And he has no interest in that whatsoever. He only cares about snakes. Um, There's a great shot of him at like the little restaurant on the cruise ship reading a book that is titled, Are Snakes Necessary? Question mark. (laughs) 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 And all of the women are like, trying to get his attention because he's a rich Yeah, like the bar in this cruise ship like sails out of ale because everyone's like, we must drink his ale to like seduce this air. And he's just like, all I care about is snakes. This is very awkward. But he is kind of horny because he's been in the Amazon for a year. So. (laughs) Yes. And she trips him and he falls over her shoe and breaks her shoe. And she immediately manages to get him sort of entranced by her, basically by being really hot, but also by being like, I don't care. Yeah. That you're she like plays hard person. to get and nags him. There's a lot of nagging in this film in a very entertaining yeah. way. <laughs> but you immediately have this situation where it's like the most exaggerated example I can think of, of the dynamic that you see often in romantic comedies where the woman is like, highly competent and smart and maybe in like a kind of street smart way certainly that's the case in this movie but that is often the case you find in movies of this type and the man is like a sort of academic professorial type and is also just an idiot like fully dumb so there are other movies like this from the sort of peak period of the 30s the one that came to mind for me, which I saw recently, which isn't super well known, is called Vivacious Lady, which stars Jimmy Stewart and Ginger Rogers. And he literally plays professor in that. And she's like a dancer or something. And they meet and immediately fall in love. I mean, there's another movie where Barbara Stanwyck plays like a stripper. And then her love interest is a virginal professor. <laughs> yes. So that came out the same year as this movie. <laughs> It's called Ball of Fire. It's a Howard Hawks movie. It is so good. I mentioned Vivacious Lady first because it came out before these two. But Ball of Fire, she's like the mall of like a gangster and she needs to hide out from the law. And so she winds up hiding in this house full of professors who are working on an encyclopedia and they've like renounced women because they have to work on this encyclopedia and it's like snow white and the seven dwarves i think there are literally seven of them and the six of them are like very old like nice men and the seventh is gary cooper who you know (laughs) she winds up falling in love with but this is obviously a trope that has continued over the years the more modern one that immediately came to mind is the barbara streisand movie the mirror has two faces in which barbara streisand winds up having like 
a sham marriage that becomes not a sham marriage with Jeff Bridges, who is a math professor who is like, I can't have sex with a woman because it will destroy my ability to concentrate. And like, (laughs) you know, that doesn't last, obviously. But um, there's always this sort of like balance between the two characters, right? And like a sort of fight to make some kind of peace in the middle. But this movie is so extreme because Henry Fonda is playing an actual, just like, he is so stupid, which is where the sort of cynicism of Sturgis comes in, right? Because he's a, he's a true dummy. Like, <laughs> there's no sugarcoating it. He's just an idiot. And Stanwick really does fall in love with him, but you're kind of like, why, though? Because, <laughs> like, like, we have to infer that she's just surrounded by, like, terrible shit men. And she's like, finally, a man who basically just seems nice and is incredibly malleable. But even then, it's it's not really, like, a passion of equals. But I was very entertained by the film's introductory title sequence, which is a cartoon of a little snake and a little apple. <laughs> because the whole thing is about, like, the fall of man. Literally, because, like, she trips him over and he falls over when they first meet. But, you know, uh, all about the Lady Eve with her seductive, dangerous apple of knowledge. Well, there's all of this imagery about that. I mean, when he first comes to the boat, she literally drops an apple on his head from the top deck, which is not a subtle symbol. <laughs> but part of what is also interesting about you know, the movie in general, but the relationship between them is that she's sort of seducing him in this very overbearing way. I say overbearing in the sense that she's just totally in control, right? Because he's just willing to be like, okay, like <laughs> whatever, I'll just go along with this. But we also learn pretty near the beginning that even though she's acting supremely confident and is very successfully sort of stringing him along and like wrapping him around her little finger and using her sort of sexual wiles to do that. Like the movie is extremely horny. (laughs) Like all of these movies have a lot of sexual tension and that's the appeal of them. But this is perhaps the most like actually horny. Well, because I was watching it and I was like, because this is the period, like this is obviously kind of the, the code period where you can't actually have sex. But like, obviously the audience understands what's happening. So I was kind of watching this being like, have they had sex yet? Are they about to have sex? Like, <laughs> I mean, I don't think that that exactly is the implication. I think it's more just that like, it's very, I mean, I keep saying horny, but that is literally yeah. the word. I mean, her, her seduction is like, she's literally just sort of like plastering her whole body against his body so he can like smell her. <laughs> I mean, so she has him put her shoes on for her. And that he's was very hilarious. He has to like kneel at her feet and put her shoes on for her. <laughs> very funny. And then there's a very famous scene where she's like got his face mashed up against hers. And this shot goes on for minutes. And they're talking about their ideal like man and woman respectively. <laughs> and hers is like a short rich guy who's not that attractive because that's attainable. And he's like, what? I, I'm feeling confused. But uh, you find out then that like, she's clearly terrified of sex, despite the fact that she's sort of deploying it in this very effective way to string him along. Because his snake, like the actual snake that he has in a box from his trip, gets loose 
And he's just like, oh, whatever. Like, she's probably, like, on the floor somewhere. And Barbara Stanwyck flips, like, flips out and is terrified. And they have to run back up to her room. And she literally is like, you have to look in the bed. You have to look under the bed. I'm terrified of this slimy snake. And he's like, it cannot have gotten up from downstairs into the bed. Like, this doesn't make any sense. And she's not putting it on. It's like a genuine freak out. And the next morning tells her dad, like, I had all these nightmares about this slimy snake in my bed, which again, it's not very subtle. Like, clearly this is, she's not talking about an actual snake. So there's this kind of interesting tension between the front she's putting on to sort of perform sexuality to, you know, lure him in. And then this sort of undercurrent of like, genuinely being kind of terrified of the prospect of actually having to have sex but she winds up falling in love with him anyway and I think what happens in the second half of the movie which we're about to talk about is a result of her feeling like profoundly betrayed because she was allowing herself to sort of like approach that point of like vulnerability right So she does genuinely fall in love with this guy. And then he finds out from the ship's captain that her family are con artists. And instead of asking her to explain, he's just like, I'm done with you. And she immediately is just like, I must destroy him. (laughs) Because she has to be in control all the time. Yeah. Which also plays into this idea that we're talking about, right? So, like, the second half of the film, it moves from the cruise ship to another absurd location where Barbara Stanwyck's character and her two sidekicks meet up with another con artist who has a very successful scam going where he pretends to be an English aristocrat and he's sort of inveigled himself into this American high society community. And he's like, there's room for more. So Barbara Stanwyck suggests that she will go undercover as his posh English niece And she's going to be like the Lady Sidwich. All these like rich Americans fucking eat this up. So she gets this new, absolutely gorgeous costume. The costumes in this, by the way, are by Edith Head and are very famously beautiful and very stylish. She changes from this quite American sort of uh, stylish but casual cruise ship look to wearing this like floor length jeweled gown with a giant feather fan thing to attend a party at Henry Fonda's family home, which is run by his overbearing wealthy father, and his mother is not particularly meaningful character. And all of the guests there immediately are incredibly charmed by Barbara Stanwyck because she slash the character she is now playing are very charming. And she's like, oh yes, I'm so English and like really plays up all of these hilarious little Britishisms that she's got because the Americans are like delightful. And then of course, when Henry Fonda shows up, He's like, what the fuck's happening? This woman is identical to my con artist ex-girlfriend. But because he's such an absolute rube, they are able to trick him into thinking that she is a completely separate person where they both had the same father <laughs> because the it's just this ridiculous thing where like they pretend that like one of the children is illegitimate and the other one is like half legitimate and all this kind of stuff. But anyway, they're like, oh, she's a different woman who has one of the same parents as the original girl, completely unrelated, and you mustn't speak of it to anyone because it's our family shame. So Henry Fonda just accepts this, even though his like cynical bodyguard is just gobsmacked and is like, clearly you're being conned again. 
And he, of course, is doubly seduced and just like falls over multiple times in these ridiculous pratfalls and has to change his outfit like five times over the course of the party because like things keep getting dropped on him. But kind of the end of this is that these two characters start dating and eventually get engaged. So she has like an entire separate love affair with him. But this also kind of included one of my favourite scenes from the movie because when they first kind of fall in love on the cruise ship, he gives her this little monologue about how he's like, he thinks he's known her forever and he has this vision of them as children and kind of, he's like, oh yes, I remember like, you know, holding hands with you as a youth and all this stuff. So he's kind of imagining they're soulmates. But then when he falls in love with her in this Lady Sidwich persona, he then gives her like exactly the same speech about him thinking that he's like known her forever and it's like so depressing and cynical because you do realize that like you know maybe he seems like this kind of naive sweet idiot but also like he just literally is just like finding these women interchangeable and feels that it's fine to give her the same speech (laughs) well and also the second time this speech (laughs) they've been out riding and the horse the horse is like eating her hair (laughs) (laughs) it like keeps poking its head over it's like eating her hair and it could not be less romantic and you know to me the like great genius of this movie is in the bifurcated structure right so like basically half and half is in this like on the cruise ship and then in this house in connecticut and the book i mentioned earlier the stanley cavill book this is the first essay in it, I believe, and it's about comedies of remarriage. And obviously this is not literally a comedy of remarriage in the sense that like they weren't married and then got divorced and then, you know, the movie's about them getting back together like His Girl Friday is. But he interprets that term kind of loosely and this movie clearly fits into that paradigm because the first half is about this kind of fairly pure love affair even though she is conning him but like they're falling in love in a pretty sincere way and then it all sort of falls apart and then the second half is about them kind of attempting to reconcile even though it is in this sort of bizarre form and so much of what happened in the first half that seemed sort of charming even if there was an undercurrent of cynicism to it, is then reiterated in the second half in this totally just like appalling way where you realize like, oh God, this is just like, ugh. And that particular scene is the most, it's it's just so bad. And there are certain motifs also in this movie that show up in other movies of this type. So like, The idea that the characters have kind of like known each other forever is a very common trope in comedies of remarriage, especially from this time. So like in the Philadelphia story, they keep saying about Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn, like they've known each other forever, like they've known each other since they were kids. And you have the sense of like the characters almost being children or being childlike. These characters never have actual kids in these movies, right? Because they have to be able to be immature in a way. And The speech that Fonda gives literally kind of articulates that idea, but then he perverts it in the second half by kind of repeating it verbatim, right? To a woman who's pretending to be somebody else, which we know is that the sort of love affair going on is fake because she's really conning him this time. The other sort of thing that goes on in this that happens in a lot of other movies is the just like trope of Connecticut as being this like mythical <laughs> yeah, other world. Simply <laughs> love Connecticut. Like when they showed up there, I was like, oh, we're back. <laughs> yep. 
But what normally happens in these movies is that the sort of, you know, escape to Connecticut allows the characters to sort of like release some of the societal pressures or strictures that are put on them when they're in New York, which is where these movies usually take place. So in something like The Awful Truth, which stars Cary Grant and Irene Dunn, they sort of go to Connecticut in this like wild state, and that's where they're finally able to admit that they're still in love with each other. But in this movie, when they go to Connecticut, it's like the site of this incredibly cynical deception. I don't know that that was like an intentional sort of subversion of the trope, but again, it just feeds into this sense of this movie being just like so blackly funny. And even this deception trope, which is something that comes up again and again and again in these movies, like someone is always pretending to be somebody else. Yes, it's always very Shakespearean. (laughs) Oh yeah, I mean, that's clearly the origin of this, right? Normally, though not always, the couple is kind of in on it, right? So like everybody else is deceived, but it's kind of like a language for the central couple to have like a private joke in a way. And in this case, (laughs) she is deceiving him as opposed to sort of like including him in her deception. And the fact that he falls for it so totally is like, so how well do you know this person that you're supposedly in love with? Like, clearly not at all. And I really like the use of slapstick, which you mentioned already. Like, he literally is just, like, falling over everything. And, like, food keeps being, you know, dumped on him in this second half. And you get the sense that he's just been completely just, like, knocked out of sorts. Like, he's he's really distressed. Like, he doesn't really know what's going on. And he can't really function normally. But that's still not enough to make him think, like, hmm, maybe, maybe there's something shady happening here. Like, let me, let me think. He just credulously is like, no, I guess, I guess it is a different woman. And then when they get married, (laughs) they truly tear the lid off the concept of them being childhood soulmates in his imagination because they're marriage very swiftly collapses obviously intentionally on her part because after they get married they get on the train for their honeymoon and they're sharing a a, a cabin and you know you you're like oh finally tonight's the night and uh and she kind of starts mentioning her past lovers so she's like oh you know just like when i got married at 16 and he's like obviously scandalized but then forgives her and then like in this ridiculous like heaping comedy upon comedy she like starts telling all these increasingly scandalous anecdotes that we only hear part of because it's Codera film, but like all these anecdotes about all these other lovers she's had and like how she's like cheated on one brother with another, but she's doing it with this sort of like wide-eyed innocence because she's still playing this character. And he's absolutely scandalized and it's very funny. And this culminates in him physically leaping off the train in his pajamas and like falling flat in his face in the mud to escape this like dangerous lady who's seduced him. So obviously the next step is for him to call his lawyers and get a divorce. And she's starting to regret it, of course, because she realizes she really does love him. And she tries to like break off the marriage politely and in person. But like it doesn't work out. So like she can't successfully get this scam where she gets a bunch of money from him, which is how this should end, according to her co-workers, because she loves him. And then we get to the final yes. ending. So they all want her to get the money and she's just like, no, I don't want anything. I just want him to come in person to like talk to me. And he refuses. And 
so she reverts to becoming her actual self. Because he's going back, he's going to go back to the Amazon on this ship. His dad tells her on the phone. So she goes back on the ship with her with her dad in her normal clothing. And he immediately is just like, oh my god, there you are. Like, I'm so glad to see you. Like, you're back, I- my true love. <laughs> <laughs> and they have this big kiss on the sort of main deck and everyone, like, you know, random strangers are applauding them. And they go back to his room and he's like, I just have to tell you, you know, this horrible thing happened. I'm married. And she's like, oh, well, I am too. And like the door closes. And his bodyguard, who we should say is played by William Demarest, who was in eight movies that Preston Sturgis directed. He shows up in like everything. It's just like, it's the same, it's the same woman, <laughs> the same dame. And you don't actually hear what the conversation is that follows this. But I've always kind of felt that there is no big revelation that comes after <laughs> after this because, you know, she's got to keep up the front. But either way, the resolution basically seems to me to be that you just have to kind of conceal things from people. And that's the route to happiness. And that you should just marry an idiot because, you know, like, that's the way to true love. Which I think is very funny and also dark as fuck. And again, all these Sturgis movies have this kind of like twist at the end where you're like, oh, this is a little bit dark, which I find really quite daring. But um, yeah, your thoughts on the ending? It was extremely abrupt by modern standards, I think. But the film obviously does not take place in the real world, so that's okay. But yeah, it was it was kind of faster than I was expecting, perhaps because I'm like not super familiar with Preston Sturges. Like I'm sure I've seen a couple of his other movies because he made millions. But um, yeah, I mean, it certainly is very cynical and it's just carried on the fact that like the script is so funny and the lead actors are so hilarious. And it was fascinating to watch this one week after we both discussed Clute starring Henry Fonda's daughter, Jane. <laughs> And I think also included in in that, we were kind of talking about Jane Fonda's, you know, method acting and her contentious relationship with her father. Like Henry Fonda was not a nice person and definitely not a nice parent. Uh, But it's kind of funny to like read the various interviews where she's kind of discussed his acting style and his talent, because it is something that came up a lot because obviously he was iconic and she was very famously like a proponent of the method. (laughs) <laughs> and the fact is that he just didn't consider anything. He just he just acted. He would just do it. He was one of these people who was just very natural, which also was kind of more common in those days because it was pre-method and, you know, whatever. But, um, <laughs> you know, she was like extremely analytical and working very hard. And he would just like go to work and do the acting and leave. <laughs> which is just very entertaining in the context of what we were saying at the beginning of the episode where he had just come off this unbelievably serious movie and then just did like two or three absurd rom-coms in a row. <laughs> Yes. I mean, it was a different time. Marlon Brando hadn't come along yet, so... <laughs> I mean, I think he had pretty good relationships with a lot of people he worked with. He just was not a very good dad. Yeah, I mean, he was also a the case. tyrannical spouse. Just basically in his personal life, yeah. not a nice person at yeah. all. I mean, I'm not defending that in any way. I just think it's sadly pretty common for a lot of men in that era. Famously best friends with Jimmy Stewart, who was a Republican which is always fascinating to me to contemplate. But uh, 
The other thing I guess I would say about this and Sturgis in general, and I'm sure we will at some point talk about some of his other movies because he is just a genius and one of my favorites. I've seen basically everything he's done. Is that I don't know a ton about his personal life. He was married five times, I believe. (laughs) But I think you get the sense watching his movies that he just really liked women, like not in a gross way. Like he just thought they were genuinely funny. And like, I don't know, maybe he was a horrible sexist in real life. I genuinely have no idea. But that doesn't come through in the work at all. And I find that really unusual for directors of this period, or indeed now, in a way that's really, really refreshing. Even someone like Howard Hawks, who made a ton of the sort of great screwball comedies of this period, including, you know, Bringing Up Baby and His Girl Friday, which I totally love. I feel like if you watch a lot of his movies, you kind of get a sense of like, the type of woman he himself was attracted to, which is fine, you know. But with Sturgis, this is definitely like the sexiest movie he made. But if you watch something like The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, like that, that's not the vibe at all. And he just allows the women in his movies to be so hilarious in a way that is just like, kind of delightful to me. And this movie too, I think Stanwyck is obviously really attractive and beautiful, but she's not framed in a way that's particularly objectifying, which I think is an important sort of distinction to make. Like she looks great, the clothes are beautiful, whatever, but it's there's kind of a difference to the way that she's framed, I think, which is part of what is enduring about the films to me. And yeah, I just, I appreciate that a lot. And it makes the fact that she's sort of the romances between her and this like complete idiot <laughs> kind of more pa- like palatable because it feels like he's doing something interesting with it as opposed to sort of not being aware of the dynamic. Like it feels like he knows exactly what he's doing, which I think is interesting. So uh, yeah, obviously I recommend this. Basically all of his movies from the 40s are really interesting. The first big thing he did, The Great McGinty, is about like, basically like, boss politics in New York in a way that I was shocked to see in a Hollywood film of this time. Like, he was really out there. (laughs) Yeah, I'd like to see that one. (laughs) Yeah, it's not as good as this, but my eyebrows were, like, raised all the way up to my hairline watching it. Um, It's pretty fascinating. So, yeah, I think this is on the Criterion channel at the moment for people in the U.S. if you want to check it out. Obviously rentable, you know, anywhere. But thank you so much again to Courtney for requesting it. It was a total delight to revisit. And next week, we will be discussing Gavia's favorite film of 2020, which I have not yet seen. Would you like to do a little preview of that one? Yeah, St. Maud, which is a horror film. It is now widely available everywhere. We have mentioned it a couple of times in this podcast. And it's the directorial debut of filmmaker Rose Glass, and it stars Morvid Clark and Jennifer Ely. And the two lead characters are um, a young independent hospice nurse who becomes the kind of live-in nurse for a retired dancer. And there is kind of this immediate conflict between these two characters because the young nurse is this very kind of eccentric Christian, like very extremely Christian loner. And this dancer clearly had like an extremely active social life but is now too sick to continue with that so there's this amazing kind of psychological conflict between these two characters and it's also like a very spooky and intense 
horror film. Uh, can't recommend it highly enough. Very stylish movie with some very strong performances from the lead actresses. And I'm excited to discuss it next week. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this one for a very long time. It was supposed to come out like spring last year, I think, here. And then obviously it didn't because of COVID. And it's finally available on, I believe, Amazon Prime in the US. It's streaming on one of the big sites. So we will be talking about that next week. If you would like to sponsor an episode like the one we did this week or support us generally, you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gabia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor and you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Scenes where I talk about costume design. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at mldavies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.